right, well, good morning, everybody. Again, <laughs> um, if you will, turn uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 2. That's where we're going to pick up this morning. Um, and while you're turning there, I'm going to just pray short. Heavenly Father, uh, now as we come to your word this morning, Father, I just pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, and our minds to it this morning, Father. We pray that you would bind uh, the devil and uh, any attack, Father, upon us this morning, Father, to keep us from hearing it. I just pray that you would uh, give me the words to speak, Father, and that you would give us all the ears to hear, not from me, but from you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So the last time I've been doing this study through uh, the book of Matthew, and the last time we found ourselves finally in chapter uh, 2 of Matthew, and really as I uh, began to study this uh, chapter, I realized how few messages I've ever really heard on this, other than maybe um, some to speak of the Christmas story uh, of the wise men coming to uh, seek out the infant Jesus. Um, it's maybe not, not a popular, as popular of a chapter because it doesn't necessarily contain uh, the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. So we are still in the introduction before we get to the teachings and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, we spoke last time uh, in the first half of chapter 2 here about uh, the news of Jesus Christ's birth and that the king of the Jews had been born in the city of Bethlehem, also the birthplace of King David, by the way, uh, that this news had reached Jerusalem through the wise men. And we looked at uh, the two responses to that news when it reached the ears of those there in Jerusalem. We looked at uh, King Herod, and we looked at uh, the wise men, and also the scribes and the uh, chief priests there. And we saw that when the news of Jesus Christ was received, it was either received with wise worship and humble assent like the wise men, or it was received with arrogance and ruthless rejection, such as we saw in King Herod. You know, certainly when Matthew was writing this, he was writing not just for his own benefit, but we have to remember that he was writing to a church of believers in the first century. And we have received his witness through uh, these writings from the first century. And these believers certainly were seeing the wise worship or in the ruthless rejection, these uh, two responses to the gospel message being played out on a firsthand basis each and every day as they witness to those around them. And even today, you know, we can witness this decision whenever and wherever the gospel is presented, one of those two decisions will have to be made by the hearer. I'm not saying this is necessarily a, a New Year's message, but I do believe that it's a good message for the New Year. And I've actually 
uh, pondered as I uh, preached this how I was going to present this portion of Scripture because it's a difficult portion of Scripture to present. You know, do you want to present it from more of a pastoral perspective, uh, dealing with those who have perhaps lost children or had difficult events happen in their life? You know, do you want to present it just from a surface perspective? And actually, I even changed it just a little bit today because the first time I presented it, I called this message, I believe I entitled it, Because He Lives, and that's still a lot of the message that's being presented today. But I changed it just a little bit to God's victory over spiritual warfare. I find that many Christians are sometimes, uh, if not ignorant, maybe would like to turn a blind eye to the fact that once we become Christians, or if we're not a Christian... We are on one side of a great spiritual warfare that is playing out in this nation and in the churches and even in the hearts of uh, believers and non-believers everywhere. And it's interesting that as we uh, get not even very far into the book of Matthew that he brings up the fact that this warfare even exists you know, we see that if we're going to achieve the mission of Jesus Christ, if that mission's to be achieved, and we remember that from the first chapter, that he came to save his people from their sins, that it's bloody serious business. But even though things may appear bad on the surface, as we're going to see here in a minute, we need to know, and Matthew wants us to understand, that our Heavenly Father has not abandoned us to hopelessness. So in an effort to make this more manageable for those that may be taking notes or even just trying to follow along, I'm going to speak to what I wrote down here as a 2-3-4 outline. We're going to cover first the two missions, that is the opposing sides of this warfare, We're going to cover the three prophecies, which is God's response in this portion of Scripture to that warfare. And then we're going to speak a little bit. We're going to conclude on, I said, for our comfort. Of course, I had to make just the number four, like you see on a yard sale sign somewhere. So two missions, three prophecies, and for our comfort. Where does our hope lie in all of this? So now that you've got your Bibles open, and again, if you're using an electronic version, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, so Joseph rose right away. And he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. Listen, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That's where we kind of get that maybe Jesus was around two years old at this time. Then was fulfilled, so here's another prophecy, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And again, he arose, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is the son of Herod, was reigning over Judea in, or Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Like I said, first I want to just talk briefly about the two missions. I want to get you to understand there's two sides of this battle, just as there were two ways that could, one could uh, respond to the message of the gospel. If you've ever noticed, the Holy Spirit in his word loves to use this comparison and contrast in the Bible to reveal truth to us. You know, we've already seen it, and just think about this. We saw the wise men and Herod. We saw worship, rejection, saved and home, and die. You know, I'm led to believe that the natural flow of this example is for us to then begin to compare our own lives with the Bible. We like to compare our lives to other people. We're not called to do that. This back and forth, I believe, is getting us in the habit of reading, searching, and applying. Reading, searching, and applying. This is what the Bible says. Is this what I'm living? Is there something I need to repent of? Is there something that needs changed in my life? Why? I, I think this is wonderful that we see this in the Bible. It's back and forth. Compare, contrast. Compare, contrast. You've seen it done now. Now do it in your life. I've given you this example. Now do it in your life. So here we see in this last part of chapter 2, another one of these contrasts is being drawn up for us uh, once we run into verse 16, which says that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. He had a plan, didn't he? And he carried out this plan. 
Contrast that, of course, to uh, King Jesus' mission. When we look back at chapter 1, verse 21, what did we find? We, said, we had a whole sermon on the mission of Jesus Christ. He came to save his people from their sins. So here we see that there was one usurper king that's on the uh, throne there in Jerusalem. And then we see that there's one who has now been born the king of the Jews. Each one has a mission. One has a mission to seek and to save the guilty. That's Jesus Christ. While Herod, the usurper sitting on the throne, is seeking to seek out and kill the innocent. There's such a stark difference between these missions that if you were to ask probably a five-year-old, I think they're, well, it used to be a fifth grader, I guess. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? But if you were to ask, say, a fifth grader, could you tell the difference between these missions? And could you tell me which mission is a mission from heaven and which is a mission from hell? Don't you think that they could give us the answer to that? One is a mission of full of grace and of mercy. The other is full of hate. And yet I'll assert that Jesus' mission, although we know it, and many in the world even know it, is not as popular as what you think it is. This warfare is going on. That's what I'm trying to, to get us to see. There's, there's a spiritual warfare going on right now, and we know that it's going on, and we know that there are still many that follow the mission that Herod was following, which was a mission from hell that was opposed to God's mission. And I know that Jesus' mission is unpopular because I see our Christian brethren that are being persecuted all over the world. And you say, oh, that's only in places in China and Africa and the Middle East. Is it? I know it's not. I know this war exists because I know of Christian parents that their adult children will not even speak to them because of a missional difference. I've spoken with and I've heard and I've seen the tears of Christian grandparents that almost never see their grandchildren because of this missional difference. There's a fear that the grandparents may evangelize their grandchildren. But don't tell me, don't try to tell me that this battle is not going on yet today in the hearts and souls of many in this, even this nation, even in this congregation. You know, it lies in the hearts of all those who either actively pursue it or like the fearful Jews, you know, they, they go into Jerusalem and they quietly just go along. You know, sometimes people, I'm not a part of that. Well, if you're going just along <laughs> with it, then yes, you, you too are a part of it. So we're starting here to get a picture, a clear picture of where Jesus' mission came from. But let's quickly explore, you know, where Herod's mission came from. Jesus answers this in John 8, when he tells the Pharisees that they are just like their father, the devil, who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Thus Herod and all who walk in his footsteps or support uh, him are walking in the footsteps of their father, the devil. That's a mission from hell. Right. 
But that brings up the next question. Why would people choose to sit in Jerusalem around Herod and then go out and kill when Jesus' mission sounds so good and so altruistic? And why are there so few today that even embrace the mission of Jesus Christ? Again, Christ, he answers that in John chapter 3, 19 to 21. And he says, you know, and this is the judgment. This is a judgment that will come upon those who have rejected Christ. He says that the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out and gone. So I would assert that people love the darkness just as Jesus says here. They're too bound by their sins to ever think of giving them up, even though Jesus is offering freedom. Are you beginning to see, you know, this great spiritual battle that's being set up? The devil and the works of darkness are on one side, and Jesus and the truth are on the other. And here we even see that there is real blood being spilled in this warfare. There are real casualties. Even the most innocent are not spared. So what are we to think of that? I want to get into the three prophecies. Did Matthew just want to leave us there in despair? He did not. But if we just read this with a very superficial reading, that's what we're going to come away with. That was God's plan all along. Look, all the prophecies supported it. That's not what Matthew is saying here. And there may be some that say, well, what if I've chosen Jesus' mission? Am I missing out on something? Does Herod win? Does the devil win? How can I be sure that evil will not prevail? And I'm sure that these were very real questions in the mind of that first century church. You know, they were getting, going through persecution. They were seeing their brothers and sisters persecuted in a way that Christians today in other countries, I'm seeing Brother Elisha over there in Haiti, see their brothers and sisters killed for the faith. They were facing that, perhaps asking those questions, and maybe Matthew wanted to give them some answers. So how do I know that evil will not prevail? Because when somebody is confronted with these ten verses, you know, they, or even a similar tragedy, it doesn't have to be these verses, but you know, maybe there's a tragedy in the world. There's many of them to go around. Or worse yet, somebody experiences a tragedy of this magnitude, of, of the killing of these innocents in their personal life. You know, people have lost sons and daughters to violence. And then what's one of the first questions that you hear? If not them, you hear other people maybe asking. And I'm not faulting. It's part of that coming to terms with tragedy. But often one of the questions that gets asked, if God exists and he's truly good, then how could he have allowed this to happen? And our evasion of the truth, the spiritual warfare that Matthew is trying to share here, even it starts to cloud our understanding of Scripture. As I was, as I was studying this, I found that many of the moderate theologians, they want to explain these ten verses away. They want to say there's no evidence outside of the Bible that this, biblical, or that this could have ever happened. Matthew felt the urge to fabricate this 
so he could make Jesus' story compare better to Moses's. You know, Pharaoh ordered the murder of all the Hebrew boys, so now uh, Matthew had to have somebody that would order all the, the uh, murder of the boys around Jesus' story. They say Matthew made it up. However, I'm really on the side of the conservative commentators here who don't buy this argument, and they go for this the straightforward reading of Scripture. They point out that Matthew would be making a futile argument here that prophecy was somehow fulfilled on, based on a, a fictional story. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that we've already talked about. I'm not going to go rehash it, but you know, Herod was a power-hungry, nasty monster that was obsessed with protecting his throne, especially in his old age. We know he didn't mind killing his own wife and children to protect his throne. Also, if you research the history of the years that surrounded uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, we find that really the world was in absolute turmoil. There was all kinds of civil wars. The Jewish brothers and sisters were fighting for control over the kingship in the high priest's office. There was a clash of empires that was going on. Thus, you know, in some versions, people will tell you about, you know, upwards of 60,000 boys were probably killed in this. Most believe that that number, it's, it's not given, the number is not given in the Bible. <clears throat> Most believe that it would probably have been about 15 to 30 infants that were murdered by Herod. So given the background that this occurred on, that's probably a unfortunately, a blip on the radar. It was, a, it was a murderous generation, but yet it fits into the, in the DNA of Herod. So what's God, God's response to all this? Matthew gives us these three prophecies. In verse 15, he says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 18, he gives us the prophecy, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. And then in verse 23, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So the first verse here comes from Hosea 11. The second is from Jeremiah 31.15, and the third uh, source of that prophecy is unclear because there's no direct quote in the Old Testament from any of the prophets that directly says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Interesting. But we're going to discuss maybe what Matthew meant there. So what's interesting about these prophecies it's not that they had been fulfilled in the Old Testament types and they were just repeated in Jesus' life. But we need to consider that they were what they were promising in the Old Testament. That's an important aspect of the, of the hope that Matthew is giving us through these prophecies. The Holy Spirit is giving us through these prophecies. What were they talking about in the Old Testament? So it's interesting that you know, oftentimes the Old Testament fulfillment of these prophecies, they occurred, but it was not in a satisfying way. So all of these prophecies, if you read back in the Old Testament, except that last one that I talked about, have a fulfillment in the Old Testament, but was not in an exciting or fulfilling way, let's say. For example, Isaiah, he prophesies to King Ahaz, we talked about this earlier, in Isaiah 7:14, that the virgin would conceive and a child would be born who would eat curds and honey, which actually sounds good to me. I like sounds yeah, curds and honey, but it's actually the food of captivity. That's what he's saying. So following this, Isaiah's wife, you know, his own wife, gives birth to a child. The prophecy was somewhat fulfilled, 
but yet there was a greater fulfillment to come in Jesus Christ. Each one of these prophecies that Matthew is giving us in chapter 2 is just the same. There were fulfillments that happened in the Old Testament, but yet there's a greater fulfillment, there's a greater hope that lies in Jesus Christ here. I like what uh, G. Campbell Morgan's take was on this. He says, concerning those prophecies mentioned in Matthew, he says, in Hosea 11.1, 1, that first prophecy, out of Egypt I will call, I've called my son, that there Hosea is singing God's love song to Israel. He is singing of how he loved Israel as of old, calling him out of Egypt. So now when Jesus comes, the throne is occupied by an Edomite. It's occupied by King Herod. At Jesus' coming, the true worship and the worship of the false, oh, spiritual warfare here, are brought into the light. So here we see Jesus brought into the afflictions of his people, but he, though a small child, will lead a multitude out in a great exodus. That's what, that's what Matthew's telling these people. He's telling us today. We will be led out by Jesus Christ in a great exodus, even in times of trial. Concerning Rachel here, weeping for her children, we need to understand that to the first century Jews, we don't understand this necessarily, but to the first century Jews, Rachel is a mother for Israel of all time. She's always sympathetic to her children's misfortunes. Interestingly enough, they believe Rachel was buried somewhere around Bethlehem. But she was one that always loved and doted on her children. And she's always used as an example of the love of a mother for Israel and for the people. So this prophecy, Rachel, she's weeping for her children. But remember, this comes out of the Old Testament into the New. What does Matthew want us to know? Well, this prophecy just so happens to occur in a four-chapter section in which God is offering consolation. He's telling Rachel to refrain from her weeping because the children will return. Although Matthew, he only quotes one portion of this text, surely he means to refer us to the context of this quotation. In other words, there's a little bit of study that's involved to get at Matthew's point. So not only is God going to bring us out of, of Egypt, he's going to deliver his people, he's going to take care of their tears and their sorrows and their troubles in the meantime. So the synopsis here is that the exodus of God's people has come as Hosea prophesied and Rachel's weeping shall cease as Jeremiah foretold. So that leaves us with that last Old Testament prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene. And there's many uh, ways that you could slice and dice this and, and I'm going to give you a few of them. I like uh, probably the last one here the best. It could be that Matthew here just mixed up the term for Nazarite with Nazarene. If you remember back in the Old Testament, there were those who took the Nazarite vow, but it's unlikely as there's no indication in Scripture that you know, Jesus took that Nazarite vow. Or maybe Matthew, he was looking back at all the prophecies, and he saw them as prophecies of reproach. 
that essentially the, the Messiah would be a beaten down man. He would be a man of sorrows, a man of reproach. And he's just summing that up in the title because, or title Nazarene, because to be called a Nazarene was to be spoken of as despicable. So Matthew is pointing to these, could be pointing to these prophecies in the Old Testament that show that the Messiah was to be rejected and he's despised and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ by being raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was kind of a no-name town. I didn't know this. I learned this as I studied. Nazareth was a no-name town all the way up on a hill. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Essentially, you know, people would think that the king of kings would come to Jerusalem or somewhere <laughs> spectacular, and here he grows up in a no-name town. It's almost as if uh, we were to say that Jesus was a, he grew up in the streets of Detroit or maybe Compton. Maybe he came from Las Vegas. It's akin to us today saying that. Nazareth was a despised place. If you remember Nathaniel, what was his reaction? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? That's in the Bible. That's a reaction that people had. So maybe that's what uh, Matthew's indicating here. There's also another interesting thought on this, is that... Uh, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, it says that the Messiah will come forth as a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. The house of David, all of its, its former glory had been cut down to a stump. There was almost nothing left to the house of David. And here comes a little shoot. And the word there in Hebrew for sprout is, I'm, going to, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I see somebody took some Hebrew classes. You could probably say it better than I but I've got in my notes netzer, which I, I'm told it sounds a lot like the Greek word for the town of Nazareth. So Morgan here, he gives a picture, and I like this picture he gives, of a Jewish man walking down the road, and he sees one of these little sprouts coming out of a stump, and he stops, looks at it, and he remarks of how much of a pity that is. How useless is this thing growing out of a, a stump of a tree? We've, we've done that ourselves. We've walked down trails. We've seen little sprouts coming out of stumps of trees. And, and it's like that thing is never going to grow into a big tree again. You walk by it. You ignore it. So perhaps this is what uh, is being spoken of. So essentially we have that God is going to deliver his people. He's going to take care of the weeping and the wailing and all the troubles and trials that his people go through. And he doesn't do it through a spectacular, well, he does it through spectacular means, but he does it through ordinary means. And what I was thinking is if Jesus was humbled to the point that he would go to a no, or be raised in a no-name town, what a comfort that should be for us or no names, right? <laughs> and he will come and reside in the temple of this body, undeserving as I am, as you are, as any Christian is. Humble beginnings. <laughs> what a relief to humble people 
So let's get to the for our comfort portion here. So many people, they believe that St. Stephen here was the first martyr for our Lord Jesus Christ, but here we have a history of many that preceded him in that sad title. It's easy to look upon this story and to mourn with Rachel for her children. Why could not God have protected these innocents? I mean, when you read that, that's what many say. That's why they want to discount the story. Then again, I go back to my tried and true question, why is this in the Bible? Again, remember that? Let's look at it. Let's apply it. What am I supposed to learn from this? What we see here is a pattern that has been played out from the beginning of time ever since a jealous, deaf-to-God, and vengeful Cain laid hands on his innocent brother. We see those who reject God in his way often inflict their hatred and vitriol upon the innocent. We see it even today. Herod had settled it within his heart that he was going to reject God's plan, and then he set out to kill. Unfortunately, the innocents are often in the way, as was the case here. Was God the author of this bloodshed? I think not. Because his word says elsewhere, God is not the author of sin, nor is it in his holy mind for his children. I, I like that portion. I think it's, I want to say it's in Isaiah, I can't remember, Isaiah or Ezekiel where he's telling the children of Israel, why have you done such wickedness? You've put your children through the fire from Moloch. This hasn't even entered my mind. Can you imagine somebody doing something so wicked that it hasn't even entered the mind of God? And I can't imagine a God that would be willing to even forgive those people. Yeah, he is willing to forgive. He was willing, he was going to give his own son for those wicked people and wicked people like that even today so this has been played out again and again god's not the author of this bloodshed right. <clears throat> you know it's not in his holy mind to have children treated this way rather there's an enemy in the midst a dark power in high places the god of this world influencing the people under his control however through this we do see the providence of almighty god at work preserving his plan for humanity, despite the worst that the world could do to stop it. Did, did Herod get Jesus? No. So this should be a ray of comfort in this gloom, that God's plans cannot even come close to being foiled by the enemy. All the while, God knowing that he was sparing his only son just for this moment, only because his time had not yet come. For the sickening scene of cold-blooded, ruthlessly obedient assassins walking away from dozens of dead and bloodied infants and grieving parents only will make sense in the light of the cross. People try to make sense of all the bad things that have happened to them and all the bad things that are going on in the world, and I'm telling you right now, there's no philosophy, there's no other religion, there's nothing else you can turn to that's going to make any of that make sense. It's only going to make sense in light of the cross. We are left with that as our only ray of light, our only hope. We can't turn to the philosophy, we can't turn to ethics, we can't turn to any other man-made system for understanding or comfort 
in a time like this, we can only turn to the cross. Only to the understanding that the one who died upon that cross also has the power to raise those babies up from their sad graves and the power to either forgive and renew those who killed them or the power to bring a never-ending judgment of heaven upon their heads in such a way that not even those parents will feel that any injustice has been left undone. Can you imagine... This this is scary to me sometimes to think of the judgment of God that must be upon that that the parents of these children will say, God, you've taken care of it. There's peace. Your child was just murdered by these people. So thus this story, it draws our eyes away from the present and into the future to see what Christ will do to make this right which is exactly where Matthew is heading as we get into chapter 3. We're left with a providentially guided king of the Jews and blessing of the nations in the form of this infant, an indication of two possible responses to him, either worship or rejection. And now we've added to that story a terrible and bloody warfare waged by those who oppose him. And I should say, waged by those who support him as well. So now we've heard who Jesus is. And soon as we get in chapter 3, we're going to get the opportunity to see who he is through the lens of Matthew as his ministry unfolds. So in summary here, Justin, you can get prepared. In summary, spiritual warfare exists. That's what I want you to understand this morning. Matthew wants us to understand that. We have a very real enemy that though he has no power over our souls, he can still wreak havoc on this world for a set period of time. Do you realize all of the suffering... (laughs) All that the devil can do, I want you to realize it's bound by time. He does not have all the time, he does not have all of eternity to work his wickedness. He is absolutely hemmed in, shut up by Jesus Christ, the one more powerful than him. I'm going off my notes now, but they can bind the strong man. So that we can have victory in Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know, get back on my notes here, spiritual warfare is a bloody, nasty business. It's not going to be easy. Church, it's not going to be easy. I want it to be easy. My flesh wants it to be easy. We in the United States have had it easy for a long time. I don't know that we will continue to have it easy. Our brothers and sisters all around the world have not had it easy. You know, that's why some, they, some reject the, uh, the message of the tribulation because they said, how can I go into Africa where people's children are being murdered and preach that it's going to get much worse? You know, the tribulation's coming. 
But the devil is bound by time. His works are bound by time, and the end of it has already been determined by our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants us to know through the pen and uh, pen of Matthew here that his plans for his saints in the kingdom cannot be thwarted. He will, Jesus Christ will be victorious despite what the enemy thinks, what the enemy says, or what the enemy does. It may not be on our timetable, but our suffering and tears will come to an end in a glorious and victorious way. And we can know that this is true because he made himself of no reputation, as Philippians 2.7 says. He even grew up in the most no-name place that you could imagine. Therefore, why would he not also come to the no-name individual such as you and I? You know, we may be going through the spiritual warfare and battles, and oh, we certainly are. But Jesus Christ has a handle on this. It's okay. You know, while reading this story, I I couldn't help but think of this song here and and the testimony of Gloria Gaither. And this is how I ended it last time. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. She wrote that song, and her testimony is she said... You know, she was in a very dark place. I believe there was a lot of church troubles going on, if I remember correctly. Her husband, Bill Gaither, was very ill. Her sister-in-law was in the middle of a bitter divorce, and there was other life stressors going on, and she was pregnant with her third child. She questioned what type of world would this child grow up in, and it about broke her with despair when she turned until she turned her eyes. The Christ. She said she realized that no matter what happens, as Christ lives in his resurrected body after the cross, we therefore can have hope in tomorrow. She said it dawned on us that the resurrection is a true thing. It is true in every situation. It is true in the world to come. God's got a plan. Resurrection is a fact of life. And I think that it was built into the earth as a metaphor for Christ in the very beginning of creation. It's the principle that life wins. If we put our trust in him, we are victors. What if the world blows up tomorrow? Our destiny and our life and our future do not depend on circumstances. She says, the song has that sense. So our hope is not tied to earthly wealth or health, but to an eternal anchor of hope. You know, I wonder, do you look at this sad story in despair? And maybe you're somebody who has lost a child and know what these parents felt. If that's the case, or perhaps if there's something else causing despair in your life, I ask, can you do what Matthew's inviting us to do? You know, look at the rest of the story. See, see how it turns out. Look to Jesus, our mighty yet merciful king, who will take us into his arms. Is Jesus that hope in the midst of your trials and troubles? I like a couple quotes here from Elizabeth Elliot. 
And I do, after, after Justin sings, I have another announcement. But Elizabeth Elliot here, she said, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. She knows her husband was a missionary in the late 1950s. Him and a few other men went out to uh, the mission field in uh, South or Central America, and they were killed almost immediately. Packed up her kids, uh, went and ministered to those people for many years later. Another quote of hers I, I really like. She said, don't dig up in doubt what you had planted in faith. I want to read that again. That's a good one for 2024. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. And then I'll turn it over to Brother Justin here. Would you stand, please? If you Thank need to God. Break.